Reading Aloud, my name is Nate Cordry, and I'm speaking to you from my telephone. I'm standing on uh, the train platform awaiting the Amtrak Downeaster train at the Wells Station. Uh, I am out of town. A uh, friend of the show, John Forrest, who is read in the live show and also did the book club for 11-22-63 last year, um, he allowed me to crash at his place for a couple nights here in Maine. And it is ironic that I'm introducing this episode from the state of Maine because my guest today is a Mainer himself. Tim Simons is a great friend and a wonderful actor. He stars on the show Veep. Um, and he sent me an email a couple weeks ago. He found this piece on McSweeney's written by Mara Quint that is outrageously hilarious. He sent it to me. He said, can I read this on the show? And I said, no, go fuck yourself. I'm kidding. I said, yes, of course, Tim, come in immediately and read it. He came in. We chatted for a while about his life and career and got into sort of the ins and outs of Veep, which is my favorite comedy on television. And, uh, and then he read this amazing piece by Mara Quint. So that's the show today. And as I'm looking to my right, I see my train approaching. Uh, so thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, it's reading aloud. And here's my conversation with Tim Simons. But before we get to it, I'm going to play my brother's reading of that great Ken Kesey story about the death of his son, because it intros perfectly into what Tim and I start talking about at the top of the interview. So enjoy it. Uh, hope everyone is healthy and well. And make sure to get Catherine Dunn's Geek Love for the next book club. You have two weeks to read it. And big thanks to Vintage Anchor Books for being kind enough to send five free copies to my listeners. If you're one of those five listeners, um, good on you. So here it is. Here's my brother reading the story uh, by Ken Kesey and then my talk with Tim Simons and him reading Mara Quint. Here it is. Um. I've known him for all of my life. We were roommates for 11 years um, before he went to college. You've seen him on numerous TV shows and movies, um, most recently on HBO's Ballers, which is returning for its second season this summer. Uh, please welcome my dear brother, Rob Cordry. Dear Wendell and Larry and Ed and Bob and Gurney, partners, it's been a bitch. I've got to write and tell somebody about some stuff, and like I long ago told Larry, you're the best backboard I know. So indulge me a little. I am but hurt. We built the box ourselves, George Walker mainly, and Zane and Jed's friends and frat brothers dug the hole in a nice spot between the chicken house and the pond. Paige found the stone and designed the etching. You would have been proud, Wendell, especially of the box clear pine pegged together and trimmed with redwood, the handles of thick hemp rope. And you, Ed, would have appreciated the lining. It was a piece of Tibetan brocade given Mountain Girl by Owlsley 15 years ago, gilt and silver and russet phoenix bird patterns unfurling in flames. And last month, Bob, Zane was goose hunting in the field across the road and killed a snow goose. I told him to be sure to save the down. Susan Butkovich covered this in white silk for the pillow, while Faye and M.G. and Gretch and Candace stitched and stapled the brocade into the box. It was a double pretty day, like winter holding its breath, giving us a break. About 300 people stood around and sung from the little hymn books that Diane Casey had Xeroxed. Everlasting arms, sweet hour of prayer, 
in the garden and so forth, with all of my cousins leading the singing and Dale on his fiddle. While we were singing Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, Zane and Kit and the neighbor boys that have grown up with us carried the box to the hole. The preacher is also the Pleasant Hill School superintendent has known our kids since kindergarten. I learned a lot about Jed that I'd either forgotten or never known, like his being a member of the National Honor Society and finishing sixth in a class of more than 100. We sung some more. People filed by and dropped stuff in on Jed. I put in that silver whistle I used to wear with the Hopi cross soldered on it. One of our frat brothers put in a quartz watch, guaranteed to keep beeping every 15 minutes for five years. Faye put in a snapshot of her and I with a pitchfork, all Grant Wood-esque, in front of the old bus. Paul Foster put in the little leather-bound New Testament given him by his father, who had carried it during his 65 years as a minister. <clears throat> Paul Sawyer read from Leaves of Grass, while the boys each hammered in the one nail they had remembered to put in their pockets. The betas formed a circle and passed the loving cup around, a ritual our fraternity generally uses when a member is leaving the circle to become engaged. Jed and Zane and I are all members, you understand, not to mention Hagen. And the boys lowered the box with these ropes George had cut and braided. Zane and I tossed in the first shovelfuls. It sounded like the first thunderclaps of revelations. But it's an earlier scene I want to describe for you all, as writers and friends and fathers, up at the hospital in cold gray Spokane. We generally started moving, he generally, he finally started moving a little. Zane and I had been carrying plastic bags of snow to pack his head in, trying to stop the swelling that all the doctors told us would follow as blood poured to the bruised brain. We noticed some reaction to the cold, and the snow I brushed across his lips to ease the bloody parch where all the tubes ran in caused him to roll his arms a little, then more, then too much. With the little monitor's light, monitor lights bleeping faster and faster, and I ran to the phone to call the motel where I had just sent most of the family for some rest. You guys better get back over here. He's either going or coming. Everybody was there in less than five minutes. Chuck and Sue, Kit and Zane, Shannon and her fiance, Jay. Jay's dad, Irby, Cheryl and her husband, Bill, my mom, Faye, my whole family except for my dead daddy and Grandma Smith down with age and Alzheimer's. Jed's leg was shaking with the force of his heartbeat. Kit and Zane tried to hold it. He was starting to go into seizures like the neurosurgeon had predicted. Up till this time, everybody had been exhorting him to, hang on, old timer, stick it out. This thing can't pin you. You're too tough, too brave. Sure it hurts, but you can pull through it. Just grit your teeth and hang on. Now, we could see him trying, fighting. We could see it in his clenching fists, his threshing legs. And then, ah, oh, Jesus, we saw it in his face. The peacefully swollen, unconscious blank suddenly was filled with expression. He came back in, he checked it out, and he saw better than we could begin to imagine how terribly hurt he was. His poor face grimaced, it grimaced with pain. 
his purple brown knitted, and his teeth actually did try and clench on those tubes. And then, oh, my old buddies, he cried. The doctors had already told us in every gentle way they could that he was brain dead, gone for good, but we all saw it. The quick flicker back of consciousness, the awful hurt being realized, the tears saying, I don't think I can do her this time, Dad. I'm sorry. I truly am. And everybody said, it's okay, old Jedder Dink. You know better than we do. Breathe easy. Go on ahead. We'll catch you later down the line. His threshing stopped. His face went blank again. I thought of old Jack, Wendell, ungripping his hands, letting his fields finally go. The phone rang in the nurse's quarters. It was the doctor for me. He had just appraised all the latest readouts on the monitors. Your son is essentially dead, Mr. Casey. I'm very sorry. And the sorrow rung absolutely honest. I said something. Zane picked up the extension and we watched each other while the voice explained the phenomena. We said we saw it also and we're not surprised. Thank you. Then the doctor asked a strange thing. He wanted to know what kind of kid Jed was. Zane and I both demanded what he meant. He said he was wondering how Jed would have felt about being an organ donor. Our hearts both jumped. He would love it. Jed's always been as generous as they come. Take whatever you can use. The doctor waited for our relation to ease down, then told us to take the kidneys. They had to take them before the life support was turned off. Did we understand? After a while, we told them we did. So Faye and I had to sign five copies apiece on a cold Formica countertop while the machine pumped out the little beep, beep, beep in the dim tangle of technology behind us. In all my life, waking and dreaming, I never imagined anything harder. Everybody went in and told him goodbye, kissed his broken nose, shook his hand, squeezed his big old hairy foot, headed down the corridor. Somebody said it might be a good idea to get a script for some downers. We'd all been up for about 40 hours, either in the chapel praying like maniacs or at his bedside talking to him. We didn't know if we could sleep. Chuck and I walked back to the intensive care ward to ask. All the doctors were there, bent over a long list, phoning numbers, matching blood types, ordering nurses. In such a hurry, they hardly had time to offer sympathy. Busy, and justly so. But the nurses, the nurses bent over their clipboards, could barely see to fill out the forms. They phoned the hotel about an hour later to tell us it was over and that the kidneys were in perfect shape. That was about four in the morning. They phoned again a little after six to say that the kidneys were already in two young somebodies. <laughs> what a world. We've heard since that they've used 12 things out of him, including corneas, and the red-winged blackbirds sing in the budding green gauge plum tree. With love, Ken. P.S. When Jed's wallet was finally sorted out of the debris and confusion of the wreck, it was discovered that he'd already provided for such a situation. He'd signed the place on his driver's license, indicating that he wanted to be an organ donor in the event of etc., etc. 
One man gathers what another man spills. This episode of Reading Aloud is brought to you by Loot Crate. I have a Loot Crate box right in front of me. I opened it, I touched the things inside, and I was real jazzed. This was like a Hulk-themed, Marvel-themed Loot Crate box. There is a... That Infinity Gauntlet oven mitt is amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Who wears this? Thanos wears that. In the in the most current uh, Marvel movie, the that gem that's in Vision's head, that's one of the the gems that'll go on your uh, oven mitt. Wow! So collecting like, them all. When you're roasting a chicken, you can put this on, and you have the infinite glove of. Loot Crate is more than just a subscription service. It's an entire community of fans that share their experience and interact with one another around the unboxing of each month's crate, which I just did in private. And they guarantee 40 bucks in value or more in every crate. Sometimes it's a lot more. Uh, previous theme uh, previous theme boxes include Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda. If any of these kind of things interest you, this product is for you. And this month, it's brave new worlds in societies and flux that don't always turn out to be the best. So it's sort of around the dystopia theme featuring uh, RoboCop, Terminator 2, The Matrix, and new favorites, Bioshock Infinite and Fallout 4. Uh, A figure, cool collectibles, and of course, a monthly tee. Remember, you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. When the cutoff happens, it happens. That's it. So go to lootcrate.com slash Nate, enter code Nate, and save three bucks on your new subscription today. Do you mind if we just talk? Yeah, sure. For a second? Yeah. It wasn't, um... Oh, how do I turn this down? I think I'm super loud in here. Uh, in front of your, uh, right here. Right. Yeah. That's right. bad. You're, You're the number one. one. Number one? Hello? Hi. Okay, cool. Uh, it was, re- yeah, it was very, uh, reserved. It wasn't overly emotional. Yeah. But you could tell, you could tell that it was there, and, like, and, like, just that, like, those little lines of, like, he's either coming or going. Yeah. Jesus. I know. Jesus Christ. I know. I know. And him, like, talking to his son saying, it's all right. Yeah. You don't have to fight anymore. Like, yeah. oh, Jesus Christ, man. I mean, it's so fucking hardcore. And, like, and you're, and, and this was something that I didn't pick up on until your brother mentioned it after the fact, but he was, like, he was, like, I, 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 for some reason I didn't think about this, but it was, it was such a true thing of just, like, he was like, yeah, like he's writing this because it, this just sucks. And I wish you guys were here. Yeah. And like, and the way that he, yeah. Like the way that he just starts with like, you know, like, you know, you, you would have liked this, like the pine box. You would have, you know, you specifically friend, I know that you would have appreciated the care that went into this and you specifically friend, you would have liked the care that went into the pillow. Mm. That's the detail that I'm like, and like that all just spells. I I just fucking wish you guys were able to be here. Yeah, you know. God yeah, damn. That I was know. Really good. Yeah, it almost ruined his life. I mean, it's he's kind of stopped. Really. I mean, this is in 1980, um, and most of his success was in like the 70s, basically. Yeah. But um, but yeah, he's he wrote very sort of like sparsely after that because it really just fucking wrecked his brain. He, he's one of those guys that I f- I feel like. 
to me only exists in 1960. Like he was born in 1961, lived for, lived for 80 years yeah. and died in 1969. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That used to be, when I was in high school, I was such a huge, um, we're talking to Tim Simons, by the way. Hey, Tim. Hi, how's it going? Uh, it's going good. I was a huge like deadhead person when I was in high school and college yeah, and listened to all that fucking shit. And so I got way into the whole Grateful Dead culture Mm-hmm. And all the shit that was affiliated with it, and the acid tests, and the beats, and Phil uh, Phil Graham, Phil not Phil Graham. Uh, oh Jesus, he yeah, had the Fillmore, Fillmore East, and the Fillmore West. I, you know, Phil I Graham. never, I never got into the culture. So honestly, most of the, like I have no idea. Really? Because I've seen a photograph that you posted on Instagram where you had like you know some hat necklace in your. You were doing like the devil sticks or hacky sacking at Bates College or something. What do you call? What do you call it? Where you have like the string and like it's like that spinning thing. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a yo-yo, but kind of like a yo-yo, but yeah. it flies up in the air. And like, yeah, yeah. And contact juggling. Yeah. That's called Jesus a stupid fuck. hippie toy. Stupid fucking hippie toy. <laughs> I I gave liking the Grateful Dead a, a real good shot in the seventh grade because I had a crush on a girl named Aaron Trundy, and Aaron Trundy was kind of like a bad kid, like. She, she grew up in Mount Vernon. Uh, my high school had four towns in it, that went to that went to my high school. Uh, there was uh, Mount Vernon, Manchester, Reedfield, and Wayne. Mount Vernon was sort of like was the most rural, even though it was yeah. all rural. This was the most rural. Mountain people, mountain people, that kind of thing, and and they always had like the reputation of being the bad kids. Yeah, and. Uh, and she was like, she was like one of the bad kids, like smoking weed in seventh grade and all that kind of stuff. And I was nowhere close to that. I mean, I was, I was still a child. Like I was a child, but she liked it. And so I like gave it like a real good shot. I like got a cassette and I listened mm. to China Cat Sunflower. And, two, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Two minutes into it, I was like, no, <laughs> this, this isn't going to work. Uh, the That's cr- fast, the huh? crush continued. The crush definitely continued. But I was like, I knew that I was only doing it to try to impress her or to find some sort of common ground. And I was just like. Same fucking working. Uh, what do you remember? What the tape was? I mean, I'm, that's a huge ask. Do you remember which which tape it was? Like which album? Yeah, was it, it like a live album or no, something? No, it was the studio album that. had Oh, you China. listened to studio? Yeah, a studio album that had. China. I mean, it was all I had access. I think it was the one tape that my dad had because he wasn't into the dead. So right, right, yeah. Is this it? What was her name? Erin Trundy. <laughs> Is this China Cat Sunflower? Oh, get the fuck out. Yeah, like it wasn't even two minutes in. It was like right when he was saying that. I was like, no. What? <laughs> no. Was it his voice? I think, I think based on their... Based on their what do you what do you call it? Their marketing, I guess. Yeah. Like the, like the stickers with the skull and yeah, the steal your the, face symbol, steal the your dancing face, bears, the yeah. dancing bears. I think because I was sort of attracted to the ideas of the skulls and all Me that. Me too. But when but it, I felt like the music didn't match the marketing. And not so, at all. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. And so when I got, it, I was like, I thought this was. I was always into a little bit more of like. Like the hard, the actual hardcore music came later. Like the actual, but like I wanted everything to be harder and louder and faster. Right. And so I was like, I wasn't. I was into 
like the I was into seventh grade punk bands. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I was into like whatever was hard and fast and loud. Yeah. So that was sort of, but also like, you know, I listened to like Red Hot Chili Peppers or whatever. Sure. I wasn't sort of like a, like a New York City, like CBGB seventh grader. Of course. You know? Of course. But um, still. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, I'm glad I could share that with you. I don't even, I don't even, I def, I, mean, I didn't even make it to the second side of that tape. I mean, like right there when he starts singing, yeah. it was done. Yeah. Well, it happens fast. You're either with them or you are like aggressively <laughs> against them. How long did you stay in that phase? Oh, long time. Long time. I needed it. I don't know. I was at, I, I was really into Nirvana and mm-hmm. Pearl Jam and um, Mud Honey and like Seattle Rock. Mm-hmm. When I was in like ninth, eighth or ninth grade. And then like senior year, I just started listening to jam bands. I started listening. I had a, like a cool friend who was like, listen to Fish. Listen to Bouncing Round the Room. Uh-huh. And like the live Fish album. And I just got hooked. And I was like, this is improvisational. They're making it up. They're like really present. Like any band who's playing the same, like they have the same set list every night, that, that's you're a square. <laughs> like these guys are really, <laughs> they're really like in reinventing music, man. And then I really bought into the whole culture of it. Yeah. Like the whole, like going to shows and hippie, hippie girls and, and the did whole. Did you sell grilled cheese sandwiches? I did. I sold um, like ex- shitty expensive beer and grilled cheese sandwiches at the. Did at, you really? This yeah. Is, you're not joking. In Maine. In Lewiston, Maine. Which show was that? Uh, the, the, fuck. Uh, it was in the summer. It was like the Lemon Wheel or it was um, well, the, the Clifford Ball. Oh, okay. Maybe the, that was in New York. I forget. Well, the Lemon Wheel and like the Great Went. The Great Went. Is that where you did it? Because yeah. that was up north. That, it, the Great Went. Yeah, okay. yeah. Way the fuck up there Way in the an Air Force base. Yeah. Uh, I remember that. So a buddy of mine actually grew up in the town that the that Lemon Wheel and the Great Went happened yeah. in. And he said, and like, God damn it. God bless Mainers. Like, I, I mean, I love them. I love them. Um but they put extra security <laughs> on that one main street that ran through, like, the one main street of town yeah. that had, like, it was both residential and commercial. That was the one street that led to that Air Force base. Of course, you get, like, this town has never seen that many people. You have yeah. 50,000 people going to it. Yeah. So the cars are just backed up forever. Yeah. They put extra security on the roads not to protect – the town from the incoming people, but protect the incoming people from the town. Like there's like God bless. Like there is a certain amount of closed mindedness in rural areas toward. I feel like they're just still stuck in 1950, like with the goddamn hippies and their long hair. Oh. So that was there to make sure that everything was cool between like the hippies. They were afraid the locals would like would, rebel and like fucking throw rocks yeah. at the cars. Yes. Get the fuck out of our town. Get the fuck out of our town because whatever, you know, you're this the devil music or whatever. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how much money that town made over the course of three days. Probably more than they make in three years. I'm guessing. I think so, but there's also a part of me just with like the sort of like that that I feel like God I'm gonna say God bless Maine again I feel like they wouldn't plan ahead they'd be like oh we just bought the same amount of stuff we buy for every other week right and we ran out. We ran out of. <laughs> we ran out of stock. Like we could have made a lot of money. But right. Like, and you're I not just... fucking coming in here taking the last bottle of water and white bread because we're fucking full. Um, have you? Again, this is a. Th- I I bring this up so often when we see each other because um, 
because I'm fascinated that you're from Maine and because there, there's very few people in this industry who are from Maine. Um, that you, are you aware of the It remake that is happening right I now? I am, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that? Did you watch the original, like, uh, the original miniseries on CBS or ABC? I think I did. Yeah. I think I did. And I, I, but I was also one of those people that, like, maybe I watched the first one, but I, I started reading Stephen King when I was in, like, the sixth or seventh grade. And to me. Wow. Did everyone read him? Everybody did. No well, shit. Well, I think I think everybody, or at least everybody I knew, did. Yeah. But I was a reader. Like, I mean, like we would go to the library and get a stack of books every week. Like it was a thing. Yeah. Um, like that was a big part of my childhood. So, so I, I think I, I. So I honestly, I was reading Stephen King books in seventh grade or sixth grade, which was too. Fuck. Which was too early. Much too early. <laughs> was way too early. And I was also in that thing of whenever I would see a Stephen King movie, they've always been poorly done. I don't yeah. feel like they've ever really gotten the budgets necessary to like really do it. Mm. I mean, maybe Pet Cemetery came close. I love Pet Cemetery. I mean, but, The Shining, of course, but that's a different thing. But that's a different thing. That's it like it his has, take on that. Yeah, story. it has nothing. Like the actual Kubrick movie, which is amazing, yeah. of course, has nothing to do with like the book that Stephen King wrote. Mm-hmm. So I kind of don't even consider that a Stephen King movie. Yeah. But like all the other ones, Salem's Lot and Pet Cemetery Dead Zone. and Dead yeah. Zone, all of those things just never really came close to how horrifying and how scary those books were. Yes. And I remember reading it and reading uh, Misery. And reading. Oh yeah, Mis- misery is actually misery works. Misery. Oh yeah, she misery. Misery works. really works. Um, and and uh, like Cujo, ne- needful no. things. Uh, yeah, Cujo is right. not good. Um, Christine is terrible. Christine is terrible. The, but the I remember having to actually shut the book. Like if I was reading it too late at night, and just being like, I can't. What a feeling. This is impossible to finish right now. Yeah. And I've never gotten that feeling from the movies. And I've been scared by horror movies, but I just, from his, sure. it never worked. You felt that way with it? Or with I, all, whatever I think you were I reading? I felt that way with, I think I felt that way with the It miniseries, which is just like, this is just not going to be as scary as. It's, it's fucking scary. Yeah. How yeah. do you feel about it? Um, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I'm excited because I love, I love yeah. it. And I think that the, the miniseries back in the day kind of still holds up. Every Halloween they play it on that, that channel Chiller, which is just a horror channel, which I don't think <laughs> I is around. That exists. I think it's only around from like November, from se- like September 1st to November 1st. Oh, so it's like the holiday radio station that only yes, plays Christmas songs. exactly. But, but it's for horror movies. Horror movies. Awesome. So, um, and I really like Halloween and I really like the fall and I like, and I get it. So I like to watch a lot of horror at that yeah. time of year. Um, and it was playing last year and I watched most of it and, and it's great. And I, and because I was, I, I, you know, they're starting to audition for all these little parts. So I went in for one of the roles and I was like, I haven't, I haven't read, I haven't read this book since I tried to read it when I was uh-huh. same thing, like in seventh or eighth grade. Cause I was like, this is going to scare the fuck out of me yeah. and I shouldn't read this. So I'm going to read this. And I couldn't get through it cause it was too long and too free. I was too freaked out. And I was yeah. like, I don't think this is for me. Yeah. I don't think I should do this. I'd be a bad kid if I kept on reading this. Um, but I, but it's still, it's fucking terrifying. It's terrifying. The only time that I've, in my adult life, 
that I've been reading and I needed to close the book, like you said, but uh-huh. you were a child. Uh, <laughs> I was reading that short story, which was made again into a terrible movie with John Cusack called 1408 about a haunted hotel room. Yeah. That short story, and it's, I've wanted to read it on the show, but it's too long. It's like 20 pages. It'll take fucking forever. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't get the rights to do it anyway, but it's, uh, I've never felt more freaked out. I was living in New York and I was reading it in my bed and I get to like the fourth page. And when he like, the first few pages, he's talking to the owner of the hotel and the guy's like, don't go up there. Please don't. And he's like, this is my job. My job was to debunk haunted places. And I'm going to go prove to you that this doesn't exist. He takes the elevator up. The elevator door opens. He steps out and he basically starts to, it's like he's describing a trip. Uh, things start to bend. The door becomes uneasy. He feels something that he's... And and within a, a page, I had to close it, turn all the lights on in my apartment, and turn on the television and watch SportsCenter. I was like, <laughs> I need to come back to reality because this guy took me into fucking darkness. Scared the fuck out of me. I didn't... I, I remember thinking that the movie was pretty good, but I had not read the short story. I'm yeah. going to go read it immediately. But it is how it is funny how that, like... I tried to watch Suspiria for the first time, like, last year. What's that? Um, a sort of classic horror movie. Um, the the Argento. Dario. Is it Dario Argento? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Italian. Uh, the Italian, yeah. yeah. And I, I just, I, my frame of reference for him has always been that his daughter was the lead girl in tr- the first Triple X opposite Vin Diesel. <laughs> okay. That's always been my frame of reference uh-huh. for like this sort of classic. He uh, hates that. Like this legendary. <laughs> he hates it. I'm sure he loves his daughter and thinks his daughter Absolutely. is talented. And she is. She did a great job in that movie. But he would hate that my frame of reference for his work is yeah. triple X sure. Vin Diesel movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I tried to watch it. Annie had like gone out to dinner with some friends and I did the thing where I like uh, you know, like the, when when the cat's away, the, yeah. the mice will not Watch a- eat dinner, <laughs> and then they'll forget to turn on the lights in the house. So, like as the sun goes down, the house is just pitch black. Yes, yes, yes. And I had to turn it off. I had to turn it off. And it is funny. And wow. I don't know if this is just guys that grew up uh, our age, uh, or maybe it still exists. But like Sports Center is sort of like the palate cleanser. Yes. If I'm watching yes. something scary too late at night, yep. I have to watch either something funny, yeah, or just Sports Center, so that it will it'll totally. just it'll clear that 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 sort of image, like that idea of like, well, I don't know. I mean, like the back door is pretty easy to get in. Absolutely. Anybody could just come in. Absolutely. Yeah. That no. What the fuck was that noise? Did yeah. you fucking hear that? Yeah. I should put on Sports Center right now and see some hockey highlights that'll calm me down. (laughs) Same thing happens whenever I get like in a fight with, like if if I have a girlfriend and I get in a fight or if I have some like weird interaction with a friend or if I have a, something in my life that unsettles me, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, and it fucking starts spinning in my head. I go to Sports Center. And it's just like this blank, it just like erases your, whatever emotion you're feeling. Right. It just brings you back to zero, <laughs> you know? And as soon as you turn it off, it goes, your shit comes back. But anyway, uh, Tim Simons is here. Um, hey. What's going on, man? Oh, nothing. Um, Veep is back on television. Yeah, came back last night. Yeah. Should we, should we date this podcast like that? Yeah, we can. This will okay. air in, uh, in two weeks. Oh, oh that's really? okay. Yeah. Is this part of a larger thing or are we just doing it? Is this just like its own thing, or is it going to be in conjunction with a bunch of other things? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Well, uh, we came back it, last night. Yeah, I think it went well. It was the, great. It was a very was, funny episode. Did, did you see it? Yeah, of oh, course. Nice. Yeah, I, I, that's my favorite show. Uh, it's the best comedy on television. Thank you. It is. 
it, I think we were all super happy about how it turned out because we had a showrunner change, and that's obviously like a big, big deal. Yeah. Um, but one great thing is that from like the first time we all met Dave, who is our Dave Mandel, who's our new showrunner, from the first time we sat down with him, not only is he very funny and very smart, um, and he has, I've said this a bunch of times, like he has the right pedigree for the show. Like he, unbelievable comedy background out of Saturday Night Live and then uh, Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, but he studied government at Harvard. Like he knows, Jesus. he knows what he's doing when it comes to this sort of thing. Uh, and from the first moment that we like all got together with, with, we went over to Julia's house right after he'd been hired and we all just sat around and we talked and made jokes wow. and, um, and we didn't really, I mean, we talked about the show a little bit sort of at the end of the night, but it was really just about meeting him. Whoa. And, and like right just from the first minute, he, he, he knew the tone of the show. Yeah. Um, and of course there were like, you know, we had four years of developing a language with Armando and with the writers on our show uh, and just as, and sort of just like the silent communication between cast and producers and directors and 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 that got changed around a lot. Like we were learning a brand new language when we went into rehearsal this year. You know, that was how do you how do you how do you communicate these things? How do you communicate really what and like I had it we had a shorthand with everybody. Um and so we had to develop a new one. And so I think we I think everybody's just incredibly happy that the response to the first episodes have been incredible. Uh, Dave even said that like there was a Washington Post review and Dave said he was like, if if I if it didn't have a byline, I would have assumed my mother wrote it because it was so glowing wow. at, about that. He was like, this is ridiculous. I've never, I've never received a review anywhere close to this. So I think we're all, ha I think we're incredibly happy with that, both the response to it and just how the episodes turned out. You know, and a lot of them are brand, a lot of those scenes are brand new for me. Like, um, I have, I have kind of had like these other, you know, like his whole, Jonah's whole thing is that whenever he goes into a room, everybody wants him to leave the room. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, like, so everybody's constantly <laughs> trying to figure out how they can get him far away from everybody. Great. And as the show has gotten bigger and as they've been dealing with the presidency and like the president's time is much more. Uh, is precious. Yes. So scenes are shorter and they involve fewer people. It's like, you know, we had like these long 15 page scenes in the first couple seasons where every character is in. Mm. And then as she became president, as she like, uh, just like they all had to move much quicker. And so I'd say 70% of the show last night, I, I just get to watch it as somebody who likes comedy, who just likes shows. Right. And like a lot of those jokes are brand new with me. There is one that has been sticking with me all day, which is when Pete Groats's character who plays Sidney Purcell. Yeah. He says, Dan, you're about as useless to me as a 40 year old woman. Oh God. And it's just so, it's so brutal. It's such a brutal, <laughs> but it is, it is. Yes. You know, like, it's, it like is a, that world. And a pate and like, and just like generally like a patriarchal society and a misogynist society it is a truthful statement from this powerful person. Absolutely. It's not, it, we shouldn't aspire to it, but I feel like that's why it just, it withered me when I heard that. Just, but that was, uh, that was something that was not in the script when we first read it. Uh, I'm assuming, and I've, I, we haven't really talked about like the actual production mm -hmm. um, of how shooting this show works, but I'm assuming you have a script uh, that is written, that there are jokes, it's all, mm -hmm. it's a proper script. And then 
you get to the table read, you read it out loud. Yes. You read every episode out loud around the table? We do, yeah. And then how soon after that do you start to roll cameras? It depends. The scripts later on in the year, they're always very a close. lot. They're always very close because yeah. I think it's part of the DNA, DNA of the show is that sure. it, it, everything get behind. It started to get behind a little bit. So you so um, wh- after that table read, do you get a brand new script with like a complete rewrite or is it usually pretty like jokes get moved around, but the nuts and bolts are the same? I'd say it depends on each individual script because some, some of them are harder to some of them are some some basically like the like the A to B, like the beginning to end is basically the same. Like the shape is there, and they need to, like plot wise, it all makes sense why everything is happening and why yeah. everything is happening. Um, but there are some that just like that need uh, like like sort of like the logic hawk. Uh, the I feel like I put like a main accent on that. The logic logic hawk, <laughs> a logic hawk. What am I? Don't even know how to say those words anymore. Yeah. Uh, logic hawk, lo- logic hawk. Yeah, where where it's like, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. I don't buy that the president would do this. Like, right. Um, but like the first, we rehearsed the first two episodes at least a month and a half before we started. Like before we started, because it's like a workshop. Wow. Like you know, you read them, stand up on your feet, you workshop it. They go away and write and bring them back, and you workshop it again, and then. By the time you get to set, you've kind of run through everything a couple times, right. and like the hink, the, the the kinks have kind of gotten smoothed out. Um, but yeah, as it gets later and later, but there are some scripts that just all, that just work from the first from the first read on, mm-hmm. and there are some that uh, they don't work perfectly at the first read, but there are moments that are amazing because when you have like the level of like the the yes. level of writer, like the talent yeah. in those writers is, is outstanding. Yeah. So even in a script that isn't perfect, like there are still moments where everybody is pausing to laugh. Like, yeah. and it's usually, God damn, it's usually Gary Cole. Like there's something like he, there's something about like a deadpan yeah. Gary Cole joke around the table that just, uh, that just slays everyone. He's so fucking He's good. He's so good. He's, I, if there was a moment last night where Matt Walsh approached him and said something ridiculous, and and we were and the audience is anticipating that Matt Walsh is going to say something ridiculous, and then he's mm-hmm. going to be knocked down for being a buffoon. And but it takes a really skilled performer, and maybe this is I mean this it's a shared thing between he and the writers and the words that he's saying, but Matt Walsh said something buffoonish, and Gary Cole. The, the audience was anticipating Gary Cole to not roll his eyes, but to give that kind of response. Mm-hmm. But he has such um, a constraint, which I think is really like why those types of actors are so good because it speaks to a level of confidence. It's like I don't have to do a fucking thing because I'm just going to – I've already done the work the past – X amount of episodes, seasons, the audience already, I'm already there. And it can just be a one shot of him standing there uh-huh. and sitting at it. He doesn't have to even look up at him or like physically respond. He just, we go to him and we already know because of his, like his patience and his, his quietness. I just, those kinds of performances are, it just fucking, I will watch that shit forever. It's it's honestly stunning. I'm trying to think of like last year I feel like they really cracked the 
where the jokes came from Kent, which season four, they kind of cracked his jokes. They, we always had like that, like that, uh, like his sort of seriousness, yeah, and yeah, his yeah. love of numbers and all that right. sort of thing and that sort of thing. But I, like last year they cracked his jokes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, like what is like the thing that like will make every single person in the room laugh because of what right. Kent has done. Yeah. And it, I mean, God, Damn, I wish I could remember. I wish I could remember some of them, but it always is just in that thing of like when he corrects her, when yeah. he corrects the pronunciation of Nevada. Oh God, it's great! It's and, great. And then Nevada. I in Nevada. Like, right, it's great. <laughs> uh, Macchiato. Oh God, and then it's it great. fucks her up later when she's at the podium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it just got in her head. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so even there's this, and that's one of the things I love about it. There's this massively professional person. He's he is capable. He Kent is beyond capable. He looks solely at numbers. He is he's a locked walk. in. Yes, absolutely. But his <laughs> his doggedness about things like pronunciation ends up working against who he's trying to help. It fucks her up later because he was just trying to get her to pronounce it correctly. Right. You know, like, and I just love that even, like, the same kind of thing, like, you kind of know why Jonah is selfish and terrible. You know that Mike is kind of a, a dummy. Yeah. Um, Amy is too harried and, and Dan is a shark. Like, but, like, when it comes to Kent, like, it is kind of, like, He's not a bad person. No, no, no. But he's got to be. But he's flawed. But he's flawed and he's got to have like, he's got to be somehow terrible if he's in this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got to be a selfishness (laughs) in that character. Otherwise, he doesn't belong in the world. Same thing with Richard. I always kind of think that Richard's selfishness is that he believes that the world is, he's passionately positive without realizing that there are negatives in the world. Right. So like right. we are sort of all negative. He's all positive. And also putting him into the universe of negativity and is just great fun. But he has sort of a selfish worldview in that every, everybody should work together. You know, yeah. a joke's not a joke unless everybody can laugh. Right. It's one of his, oh, like, great. just so, so funny. So fucking great. Yeah. When this, um, it, you got uh, picked up for another season six, mm-hmm. um, all shows come to an end eventually. Yeah. This is the life of an actor. Um, when that day eventually comes, um, and it will happen, unfortunately, what happens um, in your perfect world? What will happen next? In your for, like, what? How do you go from this? Like, what? What is the next thing? I mean, you do films on your in your downtime, and that's all part of your career. But when this show, which takes up an enormous amount of time, and you have a c- contracted, you know, yeah, uh, when that when you're free from that, what do you want to do next? It's a really uh, I think you're the only person that's ever asked me that. And he hasn't said that to you when you're lying in bed, like, what happens, you know? Tim, what the fuck are you going to do to make money when this is over? <laughs> <laughs> like, or just we're there like... Those kids aren't getting any smaller. There's the, <laughs> they're only going to eat more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, the thing is, I actually I truly hate thinking about that. And I'm trying to be proactive and 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 in the back of my mind plan for a day. I, but I do hate thinking about it uh, because this, I don't think that this kind of thing comes along that often. It does not. It does not. Um, so, and and like, even when I, even like in talking with, like with Julia who has had, you know, she was on Seinfeld and then she was on old Christine, which uh, although I never, I, though I never watched religiously, 
was very successful and ran for five years, yeah. and she won Emmys for that because she's un she's off the charts talented. And then she goes into this like she's even had occasion to see that it can happen more than once, and even she is like this doesn't come around all the time, and and. So I don't know. So I hate thinking about I hate thinking about any day that this ends. And I know it will. I know it will. But I hate because I love these people so much. And uh the show sort of satisfies like I am able to pay rent. I um I agree with it. It is the kind of show that I would watch if I wasn't on it. Yeah. Uh so I I agree with it artistically and I really like the people that I work with. And so I don't like thinking about it. The only thing I so whatever it is, I hope that it is i just i feel like i hope that it is uh, it has a good ensemble like this one does because i i feel like if you can find that and if you can find a bunch of good people to work with and like you don't get the sort of like awards season accolades that this has if it's a good group of people and you believe in the work and you can pay the rent you don't need that you know like no. you can still be happy like oh, the, yeah. like the show doesn't make me happy because we won, like, because we get to go to the Emmys, yeah. you know, and I get to put on a tuxedo, which right. is definitely fun <laughs> until that third hour when just like every, like, you're the, just hungry. Just everybody's just hungry. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I just, I hope that it, I hope that it's a working environment that feels like this one that is yeah. creatively fulfilling and I really like the people. And then I, I, I feel like whatever it is, comedy or a comedy or, or whatever. I'll feel satisfied. I'll feel like I'll want to wake up and go to work. So yeah. I don't know. I know that's general. And like I have more specific plans of like things that I'm writing or whatever. But like that's – I'm just trying to imagine a world in which yeah. I'm happy once this show is done. And it's hard to imagine. Uh, I'm not going to just be depressed. But, you know. That'll be part of it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. But, you, yeah, you lucked into it. Um an incredible work environment yeah. with people who you admire and respect and get along with, yeah. and you're making money. And the show is um, the show is a show that you would watch, which yeah. is very fucking rare, I think, also for for certain actors, you yeah. know. And uh, and it's critically sort of acclaimed, which is yeah. this amazing thing that all sort of came together at once. And that I think that does come from, like I think Julia really set the tone for that, and Armando, and Armando did as well, just in the way that like like Armando. And that and his group of writers, like, right from the beginning, like, in the UK, like, it's not the business that it is here. Um, mm. You know, they they do six episodes and they are like, I yeah. don't know, I don't have a story. Like, kind of the way that Louis does it. Like, he's like, yeah. I don't know, I'll get to another season if something comes, like, if I find the thing. Like, there were long gaps in between the thick of it. Here, it's like, you know, we churn it out. It's a much bigger business. Yeah. But Julia has always said, and I think I, I'm – I'm going to do my best to follow this lead of just like, if it does not bring me a joy to do it, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. Like if it's a working environment that is just awful and feels terrible, why, why, why would we waste our time on that? And mm -hmm. I feel like if everybody sort of followed that, everything would work a little bit better. But I think, I mean, certainly you're going to have to like, you're going to have to go to the factory every once in a while. Yeah. You're going to have to work a factory shift every once in a while. Absolutely. But like I'll do my I think I'll do my best to try to follow that lead and that advice. So, you yeah. you sent me an email uh, last week uh -huh. or two weeks ago. You saw this piece in yeah. um, in the Internet Tendency and McSweeney's website. Mm -hmm. Do you? How did you find it? Did you? Were you just perusing this website and you it popped I think, out? Of you? I think I found. Or was it, it sent to you? I think so. I think I just saw it on Twitter. 
Yeah, yeah. And I and I clicked it, and it was the first. It was the first line that really got me. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's um, so good. So Tim emailed me. Um, he did the live show, and uh, at the LA Times the Festival of Books, he emailed me the next week and said, "Can I come in and read this piece on the show?" And I said, "No, I don't want you here." And he's like, I, I would like to come. And I was like, well, I don't, why? Why do you want to come here and do this? And he's like, why are you being a jerk? And I was like, why are you being a jerk? But you just showed up anyway. I just showed up anyway. I scheduled the time and I was like, he's not going to show up because I told him not to. Yeah. But then you showed up. No, I think that I have uh, sort of like a, I don't know, like a codependent, like I audition for your approval a lot. And so I think <laughs> no, matter, no matter how big of a jerk you are, like I'm still just going to be like, all right. Well, how can I make that go better next time? All right. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I hope this happens next week too. Send me some other bullshit that you want to read that I'm going to say no to. <laughs> this is an amazing piece written by Mara Quint. Um, I, <laughs> this piece made me laugh out loud. It's really funny. And I almost transitioned to it earlier. We were talking about uh, the patriarchal society and the bullshit that goes along with oh, that. Yeah. I almost did, but I wanted to ask questions about, about Veep. Um, you can edit this all together, maybe make the Veep stuff go first and then... Yeah, look at that. Look at that. Look at you telling me how to do my yeah. job. <laughs> what the fuck, Nate, man? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to read this thing for me? I do. And for everyone else who's listening. How to Negotiate a Raise If You're a Woman by Mara Quint. First, as you are a woman, stop crying. Before you meet with your boss, put together a list of your accomplishments. This should include some of the proposals your boss ultimately took credit for, but not so many that it seems you're trying to prove a passive-aggressive point. Also, don't include too many of the group projects you initiated that were handed to your male coworkers to run, as this will only prove what everyone keeps saying about you not being a team player. Prepare in advance what the lowest number is that you will accept. While determining this figure, take into account the amount of years you've worked there, if and by how much you've increased the company's profitability, and what that guy Ryan, who got hired at the same time as you but with an inexplicably higher salary based on nebulous prior experience makes. Be careful not to ask for more than Ryan. They've made it very clear in previous conversations that they can't go paying one employee more than another for the same job. Schedule a meeting with your boss. Many people make the mistake of, quote, popping in, unquote, to ask for a raise unexpectedly. Women especially are prone to err in this way because they are impulsive and flighty. Don't follow your boss into his, her, but probably his office like a puppy chasing a squirrel. Also, be sure not to initiate a conversation when you run into each other in the parking lot during lunch when you're on your cell again arguing with your mom about why you never call. Make sure to make an appointment in your boss's calendar so he's prepared to meet with you while subtly being made aware that you're capable of telling time and knowing what a calendar is. Don't ask your boyfriend or husband to negotiate for you, no matter how many times he tells you he could if you wanted. Prior to your negotiation meeting, find a good place in the building to prepare yourself. Bathrooms work well, as your nervous female energy will make you likely to start to cry and, or, it's possible, you have not yet stopped crying all day, week, or month. Splashing water in your face will help. Staring at yourself in the mirror, wondering where that gray hair came from and how you got stuck in a position with seemingly no room for advancement as your life slips away will not. Schedule enough time to return to the bathroom again when you inevitably start crying in the hallway on your way out. Add eight extra minutes to allow yourself to spiral into questioning why you can just never get it together and how this is just that 10th grade frog dissection disaster 
all over again. During the conversation, maintain eye contact and smile, but not too much of either so as not to appear bitchy nor ditzy. Remember that men are often confused by straightforward expressions of composure and will decide if you are, quote, cold, unquote, a particularly damning determination from which there is little hope of return. Alternate eye contact and smiling at eight-second intervals to properly position yourself as somehow miraculously both a woman and a capable employee. Do not wear too much makeup, as this will make you look, quote, cheap and unprofessional, unquote, nor should you avoid makeup, as you will look, quote, old and tired, unquote, and therefore more invisible than Wonder Woman's plane. Question how Wonder Woman was able to afford that plane given the wage gap. Look into government grants. Speak clearly and firmly. Women say sorry too much and should refrain from using it. If you knock over your boss's coffee or accidentally set fire to his desk, lock eyes and nod slowly. Refrain from common female speech traps like uptalk, vocal fry, or using the word like. In fact, avoid similes altogether. Employ metaphors if you absolutely must, but only those that reference sports or vaguely allude to penises. Never, ever allude to vaginas. Focus not just on your past accomplishments, but also on your future plans for your position. This is a good time to discuss a new account you will be landing. It is not a good time to discuss how you're the reason everyone had to go to sexual harassment training after the boss's nephew made a comment about your ass again. Don't go negative. No one wants to hear how you haven't had a raise in years or that you never complain about how cold the office is, even though it's so cold. Holy fuck. Why do they keep the office so cold? Are they chilling champagne to toast all the men who keep getting promoted above you? Your boss wants to hear about what you can and will do, not whining. Remember that all negative statements from a woman are irrational, emotional overreactions. Have a plan in case your boss says no. If you brought a pint of just-in-case-of-sadness ice cream into the meeting, offer your boss at least one bite before crying into the rest of it. This will build future goodwill so that the next time you ask for a raise, maybe you won't be such a big failure like you always are. Be careful not to be visually disappointed with friends and family for more than two and a half minutes lest anyone accuse you of being dramatic. Read empowering female writing to remind yourself that women can do anything they want and use that as an excuse to order both Chinese and Mexican for dinner. Update your resume and reach out to people to network with while recognizing that the men will ignore your professional inquiry and only think you want to sleep with them. Make more female friends. Talk to them about the discrimination and obstacles, both subtle and overt, they've faced throughout their careers. Start companies with them. Hire other women, shift cultural norms, and change the world. But first, stop crying. Hey, big thanks to Mara Quint for allowing um, Tim to read her piece. Uh, we really appreciate it. She's a writer at McSweeney's and the Onion contributor. Uh, she writes all over. You can follow her on Twitter. Um, she is a fantastic writer. So thank you, Mara. And thank you, Tim, for coming on and chatting about um, trying to like the Grateful Dead to kiss a girl. Um, I'm still on this train platform. My train is approaching, so I'm going to have to say goodbye. But before I do, make sure you go and get Catherine Dunn's Geek Love. That is the book club choice for this month. Pick it up, read it, and uh, send us an email. Or give us a call at the voicemail. Give us a call. It's on the website. Just check it out. Uh, my name is Nate Cordry. I host the show. And uh, here comes my train. So we'll see you in two weeks 
for the Catherine Dunn Geek Love Book Club. I hope all, all of you are doing well. And thanks again so much for listening. And here's the sound of an approaching train. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Hey, quick, don't turn the podcast off. I know you probably left it on by accident, but I'm Arnie Niekamp from Hello from the Magic Tavern. This is what's going on. About a year ago, I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King into the fantastical land of Foon. I'm joined by my co-host, a talking badger. Mmm, chunt, please. And a magical wizard. I am Usador, blue wizard of the 12th realm of Ephesius. His name goes on a lot longer than that, but oh, we don't have so time for names. it. We interview adventurers, magical creatures, talking animals, and we talk about buttholes a lot. I apologize <laughs> for that. If that sounds interesting, download Hello from the Magic Tavern. Aye, uh, and then you can join me in my quest to defeat the Dark Lord. Correct, Arnold? Correct. Download it on Earwolf, and the entire back catalog is also on the Howl app. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.com